You'll forgive me? I thought I'd make uh, an effort for, for those here who are of Franco-American background. Um, it makes for, uh, it just, it's just the interesting blend of the, of the people of God is what it is. Um, we have um, a display table out there that my wife Hillary, who's sitting here in the maroon uh, sweater, and my son Josh will be there. He's right beside her uh, afterwards. We've been down in uh, southern Maine. My brother lives in Kennebunk, and um, he is an unsaved Jewish guy. Um, unlike me, I'm a saved Jewish guy. So is my wife, a saved Jewish lady. So is our son Joshua, a saved Jewish guy. And our other two sons, Noah in Ottawa, uh, and his wife Holly, they're believers in the Lord. And our eldest son, uh, Daniel, lives north of Toronto with his wife, Anna Maria. They know the Lord. And two of our six grandkids are believers in Jesus. So we're praying on the rest of them now. Of course, the youngest one... Um, was born, he's a COVID baby, we call him. He was born December 20th, 2020. So, was it the 20th? 21st, the beginning of winter. At any rate, um, it doesn't feel like winter out there today, does it? It doesn't feel like autumn either. And baseball ended last night. The wrong team won, what can I tell you? Um, on, the, on that display table, you'll find our prayer card. I'd appreciate it if you'd take one. You'll also find this brochure, which is our testimony, how two Jewish people, one of them 12 days after they got married. So think about it. Two Jewish people get married. We got married in Montreal, 1977. Now you know how old we are. And um, 12 days later, I became a Christian. Yeah. Talk to my wife. She'll tell you it wasn't praise the Lord for her. <laughs> And 50, 5 weeks later, she became a believer. We had three kids and three boys I already told you about, and they're followers of Jesus. Our oldest son serves on the board of his church. Our, our middle son is the chairman of the board of his church. So God's doing something with them. So you can find that brochure there, Two Lives, One Messiah, goes with our prayer card. And then you can find this brochure, What We Believe. It tells you uh, what we believe, what we teach, and everything else. And this, um, there's, other, there's other ones. I only brought two or three. And this one's called The Question of Messianic Judaism. And on the front is a picture of Max Scherzer wearing an old 1969 Montreal Expos jersey. And we won't talk about that because I once was a chaplain in the Expos system a long time ago. And um, there's a reason why I'm unemployed now with that. No one laughed at that. That was a bad one, wasn't it? Okay, my, my kids called them dad jokes growing up. Anyways, um, they, I'm not a Messianic Jew. They, people, oftentimes you hear people say, oh, you're, you're, you believe in Jesus. You're a Messianic Jew. No, I'm not. I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. I'm going to show you in a few minutes through the Word of God what that really means. And uh, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I belong in church on Sunday with all of us together. Jewish and Gentile people together, that's what the church is about. I'm going to tell you what the word church means in a few, a few minutes or three. And um, then there's this last piece of uh, information there. And even though it says it's end of September or end of October, the uh, cutoff date for registration for our um, uh, 
uh, Israel tour, teaching tour, which is supposed to be this coming January 19th, 29th. You can still get in on that if you're interested. As I told folks at Onward Gospel Church last Sunday in Montreal, you'll never read your Bible the same again if you've gone to Israel. Anyone here ever been to Israel? Put up your hands. One person. Two people. Three. Have you ever read your Bible the same since? No, he says. He knows what I'm talking about. Talk to that man afterwards. He'll tell you. You should go to Israel. You'll never read this book the same ever again. So take those books out. It's called your Bible. If you have them, great. If you don't, if you have like a device, like my iPhone, um, where is it? It's over here. I'm not using it. I'm using, a, using my Bible. I don't care what you, what you have. I don't care what translation you have. I don't care if it's English, French, Hebrew, Greek, whatever. Read it every day. I'm sure that you have a pastor here who tells you the same thing. Take, take that Bible, please. We're going to be looking at something this morning called Israel's Glorious Future. It's been the uh, topic of our, uh, our Bible prophecy uh, series this fall, which uh, was last Saturday online and then Sunday morning in Montreal. And I'm giving you a little taste of what we, we did at our annual Bible prophecy conference, which annual means every year. Let's pray, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to direct us. Father God, thank you for every person here today. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word, which we can learn from. We ask now that what we do here in your word is to glorify and honor you, we pray. That your Holy Spirit guide and direct in everything. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I've got to get my PowerPoint open here. Um, you've got some things on the, uh, it'll show up on the wall behind me. Uh, it may not all appear in order all the time, but that's okay. And uh, we'll go from there. But in Matthew 28, it not, might not be what's behind me right now, but in Matthew 28, we have verses 18, 19, and 20. I'm going to tell you about these three verses very quick. And the reason why is because I want to make sure that lunch is on time. I see some people agree with me. And this is what we call the Great Commission. Now, I, I, I like to engage people. I used to be a school teacher. So, uh, commission, the word commission starts with what letter? C. So, remember the letter C, because it's a very important letter in the word commission. If you take the letter C off, what do you get? Omission. So what does omission mean? Does anyone know? You took off the C, he says. That's, that's a good one. And you went to Israel. Okay. <laughs> omission means to forget or to not include, to omit. So what Jesus is telling us here is he wants you to commit to something. Well, let's look what he tells us, all right? The word commission doesn't appear in here. It's what we call it. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So what is he telling us about himself there? He's telling us, do not leave with that, baby. I like the sound. He's telling us that I am God. That's what he's saying. I am God. I have all the power in heaven and in earth. He's already spent about three and a half years with his disciples, and he has manifest himself in all ways. He's shown, he's raised the dead back to life. He turned water into wine, 
What else? He did all kinds of things. Read the Gospels. You can, you'll, you'll see all those things. He was also a prophet. And in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he told his, his men that, that were, were, were walking with him, he said, this is what's going to happen to the nation, people of Israel, and the world after I'm gone and before I come back. So he's a prophet. He's also a priest because he went to a holy of holies that's very different than the one that was in the temple in Jerusalem. His was on a cross, and he paid not with the blood of an animal, as the writer of the book of Hebrews speaks about. He paid with his own human blood. You see, the most amazing thing about who Jesus is, is yes, he's all power in heaven and on earth, he's God, but he willingly took on human form. He became like you and like me. He willingly became a human like you and I, but he emptied himself of all his prerogatives, as the, the Apostle Paul speaks about, and he allowed himself to be executed in the most ignominious way that you can be executed in the times that he lived. The Romans were great at crucifying people. It's a horrible death. You can read about that. It is a, it's a horrible death. It's one of the worst executions that's ever been devised by men. And he allowed it to happen to himself in his human form. He was fully God and fully man all at once, but he allowed himself to be executed in my place, in your place. And the blood that he spilled, which was his own, was the penalty payment for your sin. He paid it. I always say it, the most amazing thing that ever happened in all of human history is that God became a human being like you and I and then willingly allowed himself to die in your place. So we took the communion table before, and, and Pastor Jack talked about not doing things unworthily at the table. So you come to God, and you say, forgive me. And you know what God says? In 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, he says that he is, John wrote, he is just, he is righteous, he is holy, and he forgives you of your sin. There's no other testimony to that. He forgives and if you sin tomorrow, then you ask him to forgive you, and he forgives you again. And if you sin on Tuesday, he asks you to, he asks you to forgive, and he, for, he forgives you again. Seek forgiveness, not forgive. And if Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, if you sin every day of the week, then he asks you to seek forgiveness, and he forgives you. And you know why he does? Because God keeps his word. And you know why we know that? Because we have believed by faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not yet seen. Has anyone in this room ever really physically seen Jesus? Have you touched him? I haven't. But I believe by faith. I haven't seen it, but everything I read in here points me to him. Then you read my testimony, you'll see what I mean. So he has all the power in heaven and earth. So he's God. So he's declaring himself as God. Then he goes on in verse 19. And what he's literally saying here is, you keep on going. Don't stop. This is a responsibility that has been given to the church to keep on going. And it's going to be for a period of time. And you'll see what that time is at the end of verse 20. You keep on going to teach all the nations. Now keep your fingers in here in, in Matthew uh, 28 and just go to Genesis chapter 12 for a moment 
And in Genesis 12, don't lose Matthew 28. We're going to go right back there. In Genesis 12, Abram, my forefather, is called out. First, his father Terah came from Ur of the Chaldees, went part way, and then they stopped. And when Terah died, Abram had a vision from God, and he went the rest of the way. And then it says this in chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house to a land that I will show thee. So what he's doing here with Abram is making him a promise. He's saying, I'm going to give you a land. And he says, Get out from your country. You know that most people in this day and age when Abram lived, and this is around the 1800s BC, somewhere around there, most people didn't live more than 50, 60 kilometers from where they were born. Me, I, I just drove from Kennebunk yesterday all the way up here, and I'm going to drive home to Ottawa after church today. And I, I've gone, I will have gone further in two days than people who lived then their whole lives. And then look at verse 2, and I will make of thee a great religion. Right? Is that what it says on the page in front of me? Yes, it does. I'm using the King James this morning. Nobody <laughs> minds that. Eh? You don't mind that if I use it? I use the King James because it gets me in the least amount of trouble. Someone said no as soon as I said religion. You see, my people of the house of Israel think that what makes them Hebrews, Jewish people, is it's my religion. It doesn't say religion, does it? What does it say? Nation. And that word nation in the Hebrew there, keep your fingers in Genesis 12, go flip back to Matthew 28, 9, verse 19, go and teach all the nations is the same word in the Greek. So that's why I talked about the great commission, not the great omission, because too often people say, talking to Jewish people, that's not for us. We'll find a Jewish person to do that. Okay, I, that's what I do. I can tell you stories of talking to Jewish people about that and getting doors slammed in my face, and I'm not going to bore you with that this morning. But when you pray for missionaries wherever they are, and we are missionaries in Canada, and also we, we do work down here in the U.S., would you pray for the people, my people, the House of Israel? So you see why it's the great commission and not the great omission. You see the point I made a moment ago? Okay, now go back to Genesis 12. Don't forget Matthew 28. We're not finished there. So God said to Abram, I'll make of thee a great nation. What he's saying is here, I'm going to make, give you a family. And I will bless you and make thy name great, and you shall be a blessing. So he's promising him a family and a blessing through that family. You look at verse 3. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You see, I had the... the, the, the privilege of being physically born into the house of Israel. That's who I am. Um, I oftentimes tell people that I'm also a Levite. I'm a priest in the house of Israel. So think about that. I'm a priest in the house of Israel, and I'm a believer in Jesus, and I was born on December 25th. So I'm a good Jewish boy from Montreal, born on Christmas Day. <laughs> Forget about that, okay? I see the Christmas decorations are already up. That's what I remember growing up. My brothers would, you know, my brother, my two brothers say, how come he gets gifts today and everyone on, we don't, it's his birthday. And then that was it, right, it's over. All right, and I will make of thee a great nation. You see, here is blessing for all the families of the earth. For my family, all the families of the earth receive blessing. Not my family, it was from Montreal and, and all the family through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
and the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, verses 8, 9, and 10, from where the Messiah would come, through the house of Jesse, King David, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14, that there will never cease to be someone to sit on the throne of Israel forever. And Jesus, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, when you look in uh, Matthew chapter 1, he comes through. Um, first, of course, um, was Adam, Eve, and then to Noah, then to Shem, and then from Shem to Abram, who was renamed Abraham. And you know why he was renamed Abraham? Because Abram in the ancient Hebrew meant father singular of one. But he's Avraham, Abraham. He's the father of many. Here's the many. Sitting right here. Because God's called out people, be we of Jewish or Gentile background, we have been called into the Iglesia. Now, go back to Matthew 28 for a moment. You see, we're told to go and teach all the nations, so you've been taught, and you have heard the gospel. And the church is God's called out people. And the, and the, the we baptize means that we are identifying in the, in, the, in the person of who Jesus is, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and then we're being taught to observe all the things that Jesus commanded them. You see verse 20? And then he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. So you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Nobody takes that out of you. You can never lose God's Spirit, never. The Holy Spirit came inside of you the minute you accepted Jesus. So God is living inside of you. So if God is living inside of you, don't you want to fulfill the great commission? Well, you may sit there and say, oh, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a missionary. I can't do the." But you can pray. And you can pray and be the people behind those who are going out, your pastor, other missionaries you may support, others who are taking the gospel wherever it is in the whole world. And you see the word there, world, at the end of verse 20, doesn't mean the planet alone. It means the age, the world age. And the world age corresponds with the church age. We are living in the church age, have been since the day of Pentecost, read starting in Acts chapter 1, and this will continue until God calls us out in the rapture of the church. Now, some of you may sit here and say, what's the rapture of the church? Well, then you have to go ask your pastor about that. But it's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and online on our, our YouTube channel. I'm teaching in 1 Thessalonians right now. We're only partway into chapter 2, so you can find out more about that. And if you want to find our YouTube channel, the information's on the back of our prayer card. And the rapture of the church is God's supernatural removal of his people from this world before the time of wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. So you see, there's going to come a time of God's wrath upon planet Earth. But before that happens, he does not appoint us to that time. So when the church age ends and the church is taken out, that's the end of the world, as he's saying it there. But it's the end of that age. And then will come the time of God's judgment. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. As we go to the next slide, Slide, Israel's glorious future. It says number five up there. So I want you to turn to Isaiah. Now that you have that background, you know a little bit about the people of Israel and how they relate to all of these things 
um, that have to do with the church and why it's important for us in the church to remember the Hebrew people who need to hear the gospel just like all other people. So in chapter 11, uh, chapter 11 of Isaiah, we read about the coming time, uh, the time where God is going to bring the Messiah to the world. And those verses, verses 10 to 16, refer not only Messiah to the world, but that Israel will return to safety in her land under the leadership of Messiah. And we're going to see progressively as we go on here this morning how that is going to happen. So I'm going to give you a lot of chapters and verses to look at, and I'm not going to speak extensively on all of them for lack of time, but I want you to take note of them and then go home and study these things this week. You see, Israel was taken out of her land the first time for 70 years. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 4, specifically verse 10, God said to Jeremiah the prophet, tell Israel, basically what happened is, you didn't keep one sabbatical year since the time you came home from, came here from in the Exodus. I asked you to, every seven years, let the land uh, alone and trust me to give you enough of a harvest in the sixth year. And every 50 years would be the year of Jubilee. And if you do those things, then I will give you a blessing. And from the time that Israel came in the Exodus, led by Moses, then by Joshua, into the land, Israel never kept one Jubilee year. They never kept one sabbatical year. Every seventh year, they, didn't, they let the land go. They didn't do it one time. So Jeremiah said, everyone thinks Israel went into captivity because of idol worship, and that was one. But the number one thing they didn't show in their obedience to God was keeping the sabbatical year and keeping the jubilee year. So God said to Jeremiah, tell them, if you won't give the land rest, I'll give the land rest by taking you out of the land. But you see, in Isaiah chapter 11, God said to Isaiah the prophet, you tell them, I may be judging, but I will bring you back. And one day I'll even bring you back and the anointed one will do that for you. So there's, there's a thing about Bible prophecy that's very interesting and why I love to study it and teach it. Is at the same time that God says, I'm going to judge you, and the hammer comes down. He holds out another hand and he says, but I'm going to give you a hope. And a future. God is just, righteous, and holy. He must judge sin. But at the same time, he's loving and forgiving, and he provides a way back. My people Israel may have sinned, but he gave them a way back, and always has and always will. You see, Israel would return to her land after 70 years in captivity in Babylon. <coughs> Excuse me. The key prophecy chapter in all of the Bible is found in Daniel chapter 9. You need to read that. The first three verses of Daniel 9, Daniel says, now I understand what Jeremiah the prophet said when he spoke about the 70 years of captivity here in Babylon. So you see, there's the prophet Daniel confirming the prophet Jeremiah. And it was about that time when Daniel wrote that down that these, um, the Persians had come and had overthrown 
the Babylonian Empire in one night without one drop of blood being spilled. You can read about that in the extra-biblical source called Josephus. It's interesting reading. If some of you have read it, I see a couple of nods up and down. It confirms, it's extra-biblical history that confirms the things that actually are spoken about in the scriptures. And so you see, Daniel the prophet said, we're going home. Daniel never went home. He was too old. He probably went in the first captivity in 606 BC under the Babylonians. And then there was another captivity. You see, Nebuchadnezzar came three times. The Babylonians were the rising uh, empire in the world, and Israel wasn't paying their taxes to them. So Nebuchadnezzar came, surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and threatened them, and said, I'm coming in and I'm taking hostages, and I'm taking them to Babylon. And that's an example of what I'm going to do to you if you don't keep uh, my laws. And Daniel and his friends were three of those many people who were taken away. So if any of you think that hostage-taking in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world is a new thing, it's not. It's been going on for centuries. And that was in 606 B.C. And the Persians overthrew the Babylonians in 539 B.C. And in 536 B.C., Cyrus the prophet, spoken of by, by Isaiah as well in chapters 44, 45, and 46, he was named more than 300 years before he was actually alive, Isaiah said, my deliverer, whose name is Cyrus, will come and deliver you from your, uh, your demise when he, I will take you away somewhere else, where God will take, him, take Israel away somewhere else. And so Cyrus was the Persian emperor, and he declared in 536 B.C., all of you captives of Babylon can go back from where you came from, but under our rule. And he allowed the Hebrew peoples to go back to the land as one of the many people. The Babylonians used to conquer a group of people, and they'd move them from point A to point K. And they took uh, my people, and they moved them from point C, and they moved them to point Z. And they did all those things in order to just keep people under their control. And there's, ba- there's Daniel saying, Now I know what Jeremiah meant when he said 70 years because it's 536 B.C. And I've been gone from the land since 606 B.C. And that's 70 years. And Cyrus says we can all go home. I once sat in an Olympic stadium at a baseball game in Montreal in 1985. There were 55,000 people in the stands that night. And I remember it. I had tried to count up all the numbers of the people in Ezra and Nehemiah that were named and numbered who went back to the land after the Persians allowed them to go back. And there were more people in the stands at an Expos baseball game in Montreal than went back to the land of Israel. And that's why you could still have a baseball team in Montreal. But... <laughs> so Israel went back to her land. And God, and God said, I have a future for you. It's a glorious future. And they went back to the land. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, he said, not only will I take you back to the land, but he said, I'll give you a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. You see, my people were taken away out of their land because they didn't keep one sabbatical year. They had a stony heart. They weren't really following God. They thought they were. They were doing all the right things, but they didn't do it with their heart. They did it with their head. Oh, we're supposed to do this. We do this today. We do that tomorrow. It's called doing things by rote. I hope you don't show up on Sunday because you have to do this. I hope you show up here on Sunday because you want to be here. 
because you have a heart of flesh. You see, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is as applicable to us in the church as it was and is to Israel today. And you see, I can show you things about Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures that exist and how Jewish people can see their Messiah. Just looking at the first 39 books, we can say, well, you know, didn't the Apostle Paul go through the world and he had the Bible with him? Yeah, he had only what we call the Hebrew Scriptures. He didn't have what we call the New Testament. He was busy writing part of it at, the same, at that time. But you can use just the Hebrew Scriptures to show Messiah. And you know how you do that? It's what Paul told Timothy. You study to show thyself approved, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You've got to study it. It doesn't come, come easy. Don't be impressed at me. I've had to study these things. I've had to memorize things. I've had to learn these things because I wanted to. Do you want to? Israel was told, I'll, you can go, I'll bring you back to your land. I'll give you a new heart. And they went back rejoicing. That smaller number than in a, at a baseball stadium in 1985 went back to the land rejoicing in God, re, re, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the people, rebuilt the, the worship of God. And within 150, 200 years, they're right back having a stony heart. Because that's what we are. We are all sinners. But God gives us something that nobody can give us, no human being can give us. He gives us what he calls grace. Grace means unmerited favor. We don't deserve it because of being sinners, but he gives it to us because he loved, his son, loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have everlasting life. Do you know Jesus as personal Savior? See, I just connected that to you from the Hebrew Scriptures into the New Testament because it goes like this. It fits like a glove. And they went back to the land with a heart of flesh, but they soon became people with stony hearts again. Ezekiel goes on in chapter 37 in the first 14 verses and talks about the nation rising as out of an open grave. And you read about, it's called the dry bones uh, prophecy. And, the dry, and Ezekiel comes before this open pit. It's like an open grave. And there's all these skeletal remains down below. And God says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel is so in awe of who God is. He says, only you can tell me. And God says, just watch. And he hears a great rattling and all the bones come together. And then Ezekiel describes how, how sinews and muscle and, and, and flesh come back upon and they're living, breathing human beings. And he says, this is the nation, people Israel, whom I have revived out of the dead. You see, when you became a follower of Jesus, you were revived out of the dead. You may not have been a skeletal remain lying in an open grave on the ground. But you might as well have been. You follow what I'm saying? You were reassembled. You were born again. God gave you a second chance. And when he gave it to you, and he sealed you with the Holy Spirit permanently, it is forever. And all he says is, stay right with me. And you know why he wants you to stay right with him? Because he loves you. And because by grace, unmerited favor, 
he will keep you. It doesn't give you the license to sin, although sometimes we don't have any trouble sinning. Anyone here have any trouble sinning? Put up your hand if you don't have any trouble sinning. One person over there, and there's always a joker in the crowd. We can laugh, but we are being serious, and we know that. You see, God reassembled you just like he reassembled the nation people Israel. He resuscitated the nation. You see, there's always an immediate and yet future fulfillment in Bible prophecy. That happened in 536 B.C. It also happened in 1948 A.D. You see, the remnant may have gone back. Go to the slide six, please. The remnant may have gone back under Persian rule under Cyrus. But it was, refilled, it was fulfilled again in part in 1948. The modern-day state of Israel came, came to uh, being reestablished. And if we look at, uh, please, in something just fell off here, I think my, my microphone thing. I, you see, I'm, I'm just moving around. I'm getting too excited here, so I'm just moving around too much. So if you go to Ezekiel chapter 37, specifically verse 14, we see here, It says this, I shall put my spirit in you and you shall live and I shall place you in your own land and then you know I am the Lord that I have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. Now let me tell you something about that verse. My people Israel may be in the land right now. You know the land of Israel across the sea where I want to take you if you want to come on a teaching tour later this year, uh, early next year. They may be in the land But the majority of them have stony hearts. And they don't have God's spirit in them. And the majority of Jewish people I meet here in North America, and I meet them all over North America, from Florida all the way up here in Maine, along the eastern seaboard, and in Canada, from Atlantic Canada down to Toronto, I meet Jewish people all over the place. And as soon as they find out I'm a Jewish guy who believes in Jesus, some of them go, oh, that's nice. And then they don't want to talk about it. Or some of them look, you're a traitor. The word in the Hebrew is meshumid. That's what I'm looked at by my people. But there are some people in the land of Israel now who are followers of Jesus and serving him. And I know a few of them. Some are pastors. Some are missionaries. It's a very small number of Jewish people in the land of Israel who are followers of Jesus, but they're there. But the majority of the nation are not there because unlike what it says here in Ezekiel 37, they're going to be resuscitated out of captivity in Babylon. They've gone back to the land since 1948. About 95% of them, I would use that number as just an example, have gone back there with a stony heart. But God said he would send them back there. Go to slide seven, please. The majority in the land do not know the Lord. Israel remains a divided nation. That's what Ezekiel 37, verses 15 to 28 says. Now, in that, in that portion there, it said, Ezekiel says, take this stick here and that stick here and those two hands and put them together and I'm going to see they're going to be joined together. Two dead sticks would join together. And since the time of Second Chronicles chapter 10, under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, my people have been a divided people. 
because Rehoboam was counseled, don't, don't tax, tax them like your father did. And he said, I'll tax them even worse than my father did. And the northern kingdom said, we want nothing to do with you. And there was a, a bloodless coup. And the northern kingdom separated. And you had what was referred to as the ten northern tribes and Judah and Benjamin. But I will tell you this, you can find it's replete in the Hebrew scriptures and the historical books that many in the north realized what was going on up there and the idol worship was wrong and they went and lived in the south. There's really, there's no ten lost tribes. They were all together in the south, a remnant from the north and whoever was left in the south. And there was the nation people of Israel. But they remain a divided nation even to this day. When they came back under Ezra and Nehemiah, they were a united people. But over time, they became divided again. They became so divided that when Jesus came, nobody could agree on anything. And there's this old expression about my people, the house of Israel. You put two Jewish people in one room, you get three different opinions today. And it's true. But this has remained and this is going to change. It changed for a short while when Ezekiel prophesied of them going back to the land. That's the immediate fulfillment of that prophecy. But the yet future fulfillment is going to be seen in a moment when we get to Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14 which is where we're going to finish this morning and where I want you to turn to. Zechariah chapter 12, 13 and 14. I taught Zechariah on our, <clears throat> our uh, YouTube channel earlier this year. You can find all 14 channels, uh, 14, all 14 chapters uh, on there. Chapter and verse went through it in order. But in Zechariah chapter 12, we read of future events that will happen to my people the house of Israel. At the end of time, when it seems like there's no hope left, this corresponds to the events in chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Zechariah to Revelation chapter 16 through 19. At, the, at this point in chapter 16 is the final judgments that come upon planet Earth. And God is, and I remember reading in Dr. Welbert's commentary on Revelation, he said, you never find the word repent after chapter 15 of Revelation or anything in reference to repentance because the people of planet Earth have become such stony-heart people that in chapter 16, when those last seven judgments come down from heaven, one after the other after the other in rapidity, and everybody raises their fist to heaven and curses God. Instead of saying, God, help us, they say, Think about it. But the Antichrist has already made a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. So remember Daniel chapter 9? We don't have time to look at that. But that's the central, most important chapter in the scriptures. And from verses 24 to 27, if you understand the 70 years um, prophecy, that is uh, 70 weeks of years prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, the whole Bible unlocks for you. Because Jesus came at the right time in history. He died exactly as it was said he would die, as it's even referred to in that, uh, that small portion there. And at the end of time will come this one who will be what we call, who is referred to in the book of Revelation as the Antichrist. And he makes a seven-year peace treaty with Israel that's referred to in Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 27. And in the end, you know what he does in the middle of that peace treaty when Israel thinks they finally have someone on their side who's going to give them peace and safety and all the rest, and they've looked to him instead of looking to God because they have stony hearts. He says, now you're going to worship me. 
And that's when, pardon the expression, but I use it for a purpose, all hell breaks out on planet Earth, starting in Revelation 16. And in the midst of all this, Israel is saying, we made a deal with the wrong guy. And you know what happens when they realize that? One-third of them. Look at Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9. In the midst of all of the hell going on in planet Earth and the Antichrist looking to destroy the nation people Israel for once and all because Satan hates Israel. And if there's no Israel left in the land when the Messiah returns and God can't be God and that's Satan's delusion, I'm going to show people that I'm God because God can't be God because he can't save those people of Israel. But look what it says in Zechariah 13 verse 9. I'll bring the third part through the fire. We'll refine them as silver is refined and we'll try them as gold is tried and they shall call on my name and I will hear them and I will say it is my people and they shall say, the Lord is my God. And you know why? Because yet future, coming down the line of history, perhaps in 20 years, perhaps in 20 months, we don't know when the rapture is going to come. He's going to give one third of the house of Israel a heart of flesh again. And you know how they're going to know that? You back up to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. At the same time that they're saying, where is God, where is God? And look what God does. I'll pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. See that word, grace? It's a Hebrew scriptures grace that we have inherited in the New Testament scriptures the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now just stop there for a second. Who is the pierced one? You know. One third of the house of Israel are finally going to recognize the pierced one. And they're going to be in that land. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. You know what I think that means? I've thought on this for years. I've read commentators on it, but this is what I say. I think they're going to look at that and they're going to say, we've wasted all these centuries rejecting the pierced one. And before any of that can finally come to fruition, we have the events of chapter 14 of Zechariah, the day of the Lord. You know, I referred to the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 uh, a while back. But right after that, in sequential chronological order, Paul writes about the day of the Lord. The church is taken out. Then after comes the day of the Lord. And look what it says here. The day of the Lord shall come, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Now whose spoil is this? I'll tell you who it is. It's Israel, because the prophet Zechariah is writing to Israel. Now you can say, well, that's for Israel, not for me. He's writing it to us. If it wasn't to us, it wouldn't have been preserved in what we call the Bible, and for us to know it and read it and be able to have a better understanding of these things. So when we leave from here today, I'm hoping you'll say, well, those Grossmans were here, and it was a nice morning, thank you very much, but that maybe you'll remember to pray with us. Because... My people need to hear this. 
My, the spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. That has never happened yet. There have been a lot of nations that come up against Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. If someone came and brought their troops and surrounded the city of Ottawa, we thought it happened earlier this year, but let's not go there. If someone came and surrounded the city of Ottawa from another nation, wouldn't you say that Canada was under attack? If someone came and attacked Washington, D.C., you had a taste of that, didn't you, a couple of years ago? See how easy it is for things to go haywire because of the hard heart of men? Your country would, have been under, was, would be considered to be under attack. This is what's happening to Israel here. I'll gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. This has not happened yet. And the city shall be taken. The houses rival. The women ravished. Half the city shall go forth to captivity. The residue of the people shall not be cut off from the people. That's the one-third back in Zechariah 13, verse 9. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in, the, fought in the day of battle. His feet shall stand in the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave, shall split in the midst thereof, towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a very great valley. The half of the mountain shall remove towards the north and half of it towards the south. It's called in the, the prophet Joel the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of God's judgment. You cannot find that valley anywhere in any historical map because it doesn't exist yet. It will when Messiah comes and his two feet stand on the Mount of Olives to the east of the city. And then that valley is formed. Why? Because that one-third of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9 have to escape. And that's where they escape. And when they escape, who are they running to? The pierced one. God has a future for Israel. But you know what? There's something else very important here to look at. Verse 5, And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. Yea, you shall flee, like as you fled from the, before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come. Jesus is God, right? You saw that earlier? The Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Who are the saints? We are. The raptured church is pictured for us right here. You see, God does have a glorious future for Israel. But he has a glorious future for you and me if you're a follower of Jesus here today. He has not appointed you to wrath. He's given you eternal life. He has not asked you to, to be here and, and bear into some of the horrible things of the coming end of time. He's given you a promise that he will come for you. And he's given you a promise that he will keep you forever. And when that is all concluded, we read in Revelation chapter 20 that the thousand-year reign of Jesus comes in after that. And then after that, there'll be one more rebellion. And then after that will be the eternal state with the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And we will get to be with God forever. There'll be no church. There'll be God's people. Because the church age ends, remember? Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. But until that all happens, you and I, all of us, have a responsibility to go out 
and make disciples of all the nations. Remember, it's the Great Commission. Father God, thank you for the privilege to be here today, to share from your word, to know the things that you have called us to know, not because it's about us, but because it's about you. And we praise you for what you promised to us and ask your blessing from all these things today and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.